Lord, you're the true teacher. Would you would you help us tonight and uh, stretch our hearts, stretch our minds tonight as we talk about this? I ask in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Well, uh, sometimes we have uh, family movie nights, and recently it was just me and the boys, so we watched an old classic. Uh, that I'd remembered watching when I was about my boy's age, uh, Stand By Me. Um, if, if you saw it, it's, it's, a, it's a coming of age story about a group of young boys in, not yet old enough to shave. They're sort of in that awkward in-between where they're trying to act tough, but uh, you can tell in, in the story they're... They're still really just tender young boys. They're not yet hardened by life. Even though, as the story unfolds, we find out each of them has uh, a lot of reason to be uh, deeply sad already. But it's a quest story. It's boys together on a journey. In this case, it's to see a dead body that one of them had surreptitiously overheard was down by the river, and they were going to be the town heroes that discovered... Uh, the body of another missing boy. And what I'd forgotten was the frame of the story. It's told from the point of view of one of the boys many years later. He's now middle-aged with children of his own, and he's become a writer. And he's looking back, and he's the one telling the story of this odyssey they'd gone on. But here are the film's final words, and they're typed on the writer's computer screen. They're not spoken, they're just typed. I never had any friends later on in life like the ones I had when I was 12. Jesus, does anyone? Uh, Stanley Hauerwas, you may not know that name, but a few years ago, Time Magazine uh, called him America's most important theologian, retired from Duke University. He wrote a memoir, actually, a beautiful story called Hannah's Child, Uh, But there is a line in that memoir. He said, I sometimes worry that my hunger for friendship may be pathological. Uh, And as you hear Hauerwas' story, it makes sense why this uh, wonderfully brilliant man would yearn for a friend. He's not alone. Well, what would you say is America's number one health concern? That's a hazardous question in a room of doctors, but... Heart disease or obesity or cancer, according to our current Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, it's none of these. Uh, He says that before the emergence of COVID, there was another epidemic that was actually affecting more lives and was equally a life and death matter. And he and other social commentators have called it, quote, an epidemic of loneliness. Mm -hmm. And the statistics say that we are, in fact, lonelier than we have ever been. Here's just one of, of, of many stats I could give you that 40 years ago, one in five of us said we felt lonely. Today, that number is three in five, and it's growing. One-third of millennials report, quote, having no close friends, close quote. Uh, in his book, uh, Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World, Dr. Murthy says, uh, When you meet anyone today, your default assumption should be that the person in front of you is struggling with a disease that you can't see, but it's dramatically affecting their lives, and that's loneliness. 
Dr. John Cacciapocho at the University of Chicago, he's the one who pioneered the research on this link uh, between loneliness and how it affects our overall health. And he defined loneliness as perceived social isolation. Okay, it's when we feel not seen and unheard, like we, we don't know where we belong. It's, uh, it's the student in the middle school cafeteria, you know, wondering where she is going to sit today. Uh, it's a widow whose children have moved far from home. It's, uh, it's losing a community or a job or a church. Uh, for me, one of the most heartbreaking pictures of loneliness is from one of my all-time uh, favorite movies, Magnolia, where the admittedly hard-to-like quiz kid Donnie Smith has now grown up, and he's gotten braces that he did not need. He got braces as an adult to attract the attention of a muscular bartender named Brad, um, the, whom he'd fallen for, only for his overtures to be met with a fist of repulsion. And it's the closing scene of the film of Magnolia, and Donnie says through tears, I really do have love to give. I just don't know where to put it. And uh, one more picture. I think of our little dog Dickens uh, when I come through the door. At the end of the day, he's just furiously waving his tail. He's just so happy to see me, and I sometimes think that Dickens is saying, do you see what a good friend I am? Do you see what a good friend I can be? And <clears throat> I think that we're a lot more like Dickens and maybe Quiz Kid Donnie Smith than we might care to admit. Although it may feel a little embarrassing to let ourselves be seen for what we truly are, that needy. Cacioppo says our need to be seen and feel safe and to belong, that these needs are primal and every bit as necessary as our need for food although no one feels embarrassed about admitting I'm hungry, but you might admitting sometimes I feel a little lonely. Now, if you're like me and you find yourself questioning the link between uh, starvation and loneliness, that they're equally life-threatening, here's what Dr. Cacioppo and his team discovered on uh, famous uh, research. Living with obesity, they said, increases your odds of dying early by 20%. <laughs> Excessive drinking, 30%, but living with loneliness increases our odds of dying early by 45%. And he famously said that chronic loneliness is more dangerous to our health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And it's not just that more of us are feeling lonely. Arthur uh, Justin Early says there is a cultural drift, a current, that there is a current toward loneliness in our culture, that we are drifting more and more into it. And you know, all it takes to be pulled along by the current is to do nothing. And I agree that there is this strong current of loneliness that if we don't take steps to swim against it uh, vigorously, persistently, that we will gradually live more and more disconnected lives. I know that's kind of a downer, but I like to suggest some good news that there is a clear reason why so many of us feel the way we do, why we are so lonely. It's a complex question, but I'm convinced not the only reason, but a major contributing factor is the, is the decline of friendship. 
even the demise of friendship, as an essential need in modern Western culture. What was once viewed as indispensable for human happiness has been demoted and pushed to the margins in our busy lives. We barely have enough time for the relationships we feel that we must prioritize. It's not that anyone's against friendship, but friendship has become a nice, if you can get it, garnish. Few of us see it for what it is, a matter of life and death and something we desperately need to recover. We've lost sight of just how important, not just our families, but our friends, how important friendships are to a life worth living. And here's what you need to know. Historically, we are the outliers. Historically, we are the outliers. It has not always been the case. One of the greatest treatises ever written on human happiness is Aristotle's Ethics. And after dispensing with the uh, usual suspects of money, fame, power, and pleasure, 2,500 years ago, Aristotle said, any wise person knows those don't make for happiness. Uh, but what, what is essential for happiness? And Aristotle puts forth something that we'd never expect to be the crucial ingredient. Friendship. That is the climax of his book. He devotes the last two chapters, one-fifth of his book, to talking about friendship and extolling the virtues of friendship. For Socrates, the unexamined life was not worth living, but for Aristotle, he said a life without friends is not worth living. And it wasn't just the ancient Greeks. Cicero, one of the greatest uh, ancient Roman philosophers, uh, one of his most famous essays was a dialogue about friendship, still in print, where he advised you should place friendship above all other human concerns. Close quote. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote a famous essay on friendship where he said, every man passes his life in search after friendship. And Montaigne said much the same thing in an essay of that same title. In fact, his essays were inspired by his grief of the loss of his friend. But the literature that we love, I think, is so many of the, are, are stories about friends. Frodo and his fellowship, Harry and Hermione and Ron, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, uh, anyone in high school who reads the classics, one thing you notice is how much those people seem to care about their friends in ways that may make some of us uncomfortable. In Homer's Iliad, Achilles says of Patroclus, the man I loved above all others and loved is my own life. Very much you might remember what David says in the Bible when his friend Jonathan fell in battle, quote, I grieve over you, my brother Jonathan. For you were very dear to me, and your love was more special to me than the love of women. That's 2 Samuel 1, verse 26. Doris Kearns Goodwin, in her book on Lincoln, talks about his friendship with Joshua Speed, of whom Lincoln said, You know my desire to befriend you is everlasting and will never cease. And while I can do anything for you. These men were so devoted to one another that some commentators haven't known how to process this and have speculated against all available evidence if these men were, quote, really homosexual. So foreign are such expressions of non-sexualized intimate devotion between same-sex friends in our culture. In church history, the unofficial patron saint of friendship was a monk named Aelred of Raveau. 
he wrote one of the all-time classics on friendship, still in Brent in the 12th century, entitled Spiritual Friendship, where he wrote, I am not alive so long as I am deprived of friendship. But today, friendship is not so highly valued. More than half a century ago, C.S. Lewis lamented this loss at the beginning of his famous essay on friendship from his book, The Four Loves, on the four types of love found in the Bible, the four different Greek words for love. Of philia, Philadelphia, brotherly love, here's what Lewis writes, and I'm going to quote him at some length. To the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. We admit, of course, that besides a wife and family, a man needs a few friends. But the very tone of the admission and the sort of acquaintanceships which those who make it would describe as friendships show clearly that what they are talking about has very little to do with that philia, the Greek word for love, which Aristotle classified among the virtues, or that amatikia, that's the Latin word for friendship, on which Cicero wrote his book. Lewis concludes, It is something quite marginal, not a main course in life's banquet, a diversion, something that fills up the chinks of one's time. How has this come about? And here's Lewis's conclusion. The first and most obvious answer is that few value it because few experience it. You value it because few experience it. And I think you have to reckon with that. Lewis claimed uh, that it's not valued today because it's not experienced today. And he wrote that over uh, 60 years ago. So you put Lewis's reflections up against the uh, tide of loneliness we talked about a few minutes ago, and it's fair to conclude if Lewis were lamenting its disappearance a half century ago, how much more has the currency of friendship declined in our current cultural moment? Now some of you might say, wait a minute, I don't know about C.S. Lewis or Aristotle, but I've got a lot of friends, you might be thinking to yourself. And Aristotle, as usual, anticipated your objection. No, he said, what most of us have are relationships of shared pleasure or mutual benefit. He classified friendships among different types. And he was clear not to disparage this. Uh, today we might say people we work with or colleagues or people we play with, golf or tennis or pickleball or bridge. Uh, people with whom we share a common stage of life and share common interest. Uh, kids in the same school, important. Uh, these are acquaintances whom we appreciate and have fun with. Uh, C.S. Lewis called these companions. And like Aristotle, uh, Lewis did not disparage how important good companions can be. He said, quote, We do not disparage silver by distinguishing it from gold. But his concern is that we are taking uh, what is silver... We're taking what is silver and we're calling it gold. We don't know what we could have because most of us have never really experienced the depth of the gold of a true friend. If you're not convinced, uh, Arthur Brooks is a professor at the Harvard Business School and during the pandemic he started a column on the Atlantic that became uh, quite popular on what makes for a happy life. He actually recently wrote a book with Oprah Winfrey 
uh, on what makes for a happy life. And he says, look, all the research uh, agrees relationships with your family, but not just with your family, you need friends, that relationships are essential to a healthy and happy life. So that's just empirical. And remember, he's appealing to these very ambitious Harvard graduate students that if they really want to make a good investment of their resources, he said, you should start investing in your friendships. And Brooks has a term for these types of relationships of mutual convenience that Aristotle was writing about 2,500 years ago. Brooks calls them deal friends. Deal friends. And he contrasts them with real friends. And he says that most of us have settled for deal friends, and we've, we've given up on ever having real friends. It's really the same point Lewis is making. You can think of your relationships in concentric circles. Acquaintances are wonderful, and companions, people to go through life with in different seasons uh, that come in and out of your life, uh, they are essential. But we need more than boon companions. We need friends of the type that Aristotle and Cicero and C.S. Lewis are writing about, uh, who love us like Achilles did Patroclus and Jonathan David and Samwise Frodo, who will stick with us to the end, always let us in and never let us down, or at least will be devastated if they do, as we will. But an age that has turned friend into a verb, think of it this way, uh, Think how often we prefer texting, or maybe your kids have told you, just text. Don't leave, a, don't leave a message. I don't have time to listen to voicemail. Don't you know how technology is affecting our capacity to connect interpersonally? Just uh, consider these statistics repeated verbatim from, from exploding topics. Uh, the average American checks their smartphones 352 times per day. I know you don't believe that, but you can check it on your own phone. 71% of people spend more time on their phones than with their romantic partner. And almost two-thirds of children spend four hours or more per day on their smartphones. So to the question, what happened to friendship? <laughs> well, if you're interested in tracing out some of the barriers to experiencing intimate friendship today... I've put an article on our website, 10 Reasons Why Friendship Has Been Demoted in the Modern West. I'm not going to give you those 10 tonight, but I still believe Lewis's answer is the best one. Few value it because few experience it. We simply don't know what we're missing because we tell ourselves what we've settled for, the silver, is sufficient. All we can hope for, should hope for in our busy lives. It's hard to prioritize what so few of us see as essential to the life we want. Hope can be a dangerous thing, can't it? But what should we be hoping for? Well, to give us a vision of the kinds of friendships, uh, the kinds of relationships God desires for our lives, I want us to turn to the opening pages of the Bible to better appreciate why our hunger for intimate, vulnerable, self-giving friendships is why this need is so great, indeed, why it is ineradicable, and consequently why our lack of it goes a long way to explore, toward explaining why so many of us feel the way we do today.
which is disconnected. So to take one of the most famous verses of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Followers of Jesus believe that what is most important about God can only be made known to us through revelation. That is, you can know certain things about God through nature, through your conscience, but the only way for a creature to know what the Creator is really like is if the Creator reveals His innermost character. And from its earliest days, it's been considered essential to Christian belief that God has revealed Himself to be both one and to exist in three persons. It was a way of making sense of how God had revealed Himself, that Jesus is the man God became when God became a man, and the Holy Spirit is how the Almighty God is present among us and everywhere today. The early church's word for this was Trinity, making sense of who God had revealed Himself to be. But it's not just a matter of arcane theology that God has existed in relationship, perfect satisfied relationship eternally. The Father loving the Son, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit as the personal bond connecting them. The early church had an image of this, of, of a dance. That was their picture, um, that the three persons of the Trinity were in a dance, each for the other. That the Son exists, to use biblical words, to glorify the Father. And the Father uh, eternally glorifies the Son, and the Spirit always glorifies them both. Uh, they love one another's person. They support one another's work. They promote one another's interest. They are outward facing in an eternal relationship of perpetual self-giving love. In other words, God's nature is inherently relational, self-giving, and loving. From its earliest days, our best theologians have wanted to stress that God did not create out of need, but out of generosity. And that's important because love that is needful is less than perfect. But out of sheer gratuity, out of grace, charity, that was purely the overflow of His generosity, God wanted others to experience this perfectly self-satisfied divine delight. So the Bible says God made man and woman in His image. Let us make man in our image. means God created us out of relationship for relationship. A relationship that is sacrificial and intimate, marked by the deepest and unbroken connection. Each for the other's glory. Meaning not self-interested or self-centered, but focused on the other's delight focused on the other's flourishing, self-giving love for the sake of the other is who God reveals Himself to be. And this is page one of the Bible. So of course we are relational beings because we are created in the image of the God who is eternally relational. I like how Jenny Allen puts it, our longing for healthy, mutually submissive, supportive, and independent, interdependent relationships isn't simply a craving for something good for us like vegetables. We are craving the fundamental reason that we were created. We weren't just built for community, we were built because of it. 
We aren't meant to live in, we are meant to live in community moment by moment, breath by breath. It's woven into the fabric of our souls as a pattern for experiencing intimate relationship with God and others. If I can put it this way, this desire for this kind of intimate friendship, it's in our soul's DNA. It's in the DNA of our souls. We are hardwired by God for intimate, self-giving relationships. Evolutionary biologists highlight how important belonging and the need to belong to something greater than ourselves is, but they are just scientifically corroborating what page one of the Bible tells us in literary form. But keep reading. I know how to read Genesis is a matter of some debate we're not going to get into tonight, but no matter how you read Genesis, uh, just reading it out loud in English, you can tell it's recorded poetically. It has these refrains. And you hear that if you just read Genesis 1 out loud. And something which every conscientious reader can agree is that every phrase, indeed every word, is chosen with deliberate care. I mean, even if you don't think it was inspired, you'd grant that every artist cares about the detail of his or her creation. So you read it out loud and you hear this refrain. Again and again, it's stitched all throughout Genesis 1, and you know what the refrain is. And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Seven times. And it just pops as building up to the last verse of Genesis 1. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was good, good. It was very good. And yet, you know where I'm going. When creation was complete, this Bible says, this is Genesis 2, verse 18, it is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. And we miss how jarring the transition is because almost none of us reads poetry with any kind of uh, regularity. But it's meant to be an abrupt, attention-getting, brake-squealing, scratch-on-the-record. It's meant to jar the reader. It's not good. And think about what Adam enjoyed at this point. I mean, this is Genesis 2. The so-called fall, told in Genesis 3, has not yet occurred. In other words, Adam enjoyed what most of us would consider the epitome of goodness, unbroken fellowship and communion with God in the Garden of Eden, unstained by doubt or sin, in paradise. And yet, paradise was not enough without human friendship. It was just God and Adam alone. Not enough, not good. And it seems almost blasphemous to say that Adam needed a relationship beyond the one that he already enjoyed. Now, it was years before I noticed who said not good. Who said not good? It's right in front of you in the text, but I just assumed it was Adam who's just looking around and saying, you know, these animals are great, but, you know, I don't know. Uh, I assumed it was Adam. And yet, you can read it for yourself, how the verse reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Adam was in fellowship with the one of whom we are told, In his presence there is fullness of joy, the joy of man's desiring, the supreme beauty, the highest good, the longing beyond and behind all other longings. And yet, the Lord God said, This is not a sign of God's insufficiency. We already noted that God created out of perfect fullness. But it is a revelation of God's endless generosity and kindness. 
and an indication of why gratitude is the posture that fits every moment of our lives. That every good thing we have and every good thing we need comes from the hand of the one who chose to create us to experience relationship not just with God, but with one another. So that we might know God and His eternal character of self-giving, sacrificial love through bearing the burdens of one another and shining our faces outwardly on the faces in front of us. Now that is a high theological way of saying that God made us to need people God who, who know us deeply and who love us anyway. One writer put it, you cannot experience God the way you were made to unless you experience God in community with other people, which is to say we need friends to become who God made us to be. Is it so surprising that we can be lonely even with God if it was not good for Adam and he was in Eden, the perfect communion? We, we were <clears throat> made in the image of the intimate, self-giving God who created us to uh, enjoy vulnerable, uh, loyal, committed relationships where we can be exposed and yet not ashamed. And that can't just be... Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, that's marriage. That can't just be the confines of marriage unless you're prepared to say that Jesus, whom we know never married, lived a less than fully human life. But one thing Jesus did have, one thing He surrounded Himself with, even called upon in His darkest hour, you remember? Wait here with me. Stay awake with me. He cried at the grave of. He shared meals with. And you remember He entrusted the care of His mother in His dying breath to a friend. If even our Lord, how much do we need friends? Silver is wonderful, but our hearts beat for gold. How much we need to expand the patterns of possibility in cultivating deeper friendships. It's not just a good idea. It's not just good advice. But in this current of loneliness, making friends is a life and death matter. And I believe we need to see it with that urgency. That it, the, the answer to Danny's cry, I really do have love to give, I just don't know where to put it. The answer to that is recovering friendship. Now our time has <clears throat> ended and I know you have some questions. All well and good what Aristotle and Cicero say, but what does the Bible say? Which of course is exactly the right question. What is God's wisdom on human friendship? What does the Bible tell us about the constituent parts of a true friend? What place does friendship have, that type of love, philia, when we're called to love everyone, our neighbors, even our enemies? What then of philia? Great question. How does Jesus transform our understanding and practice of friendship today? And some of us are just practically asking, this all sounds very interesting, but, but my question is more brass tacks. How can I make friends at my stage in life? and under the circumstances in which I live. And those are all really good questions, and over the coming weeks uh, we'll be taking up each of those questions um, because we need a clear horizon if we're going to journey together. But I want to leave you tonight with a challenge and a promise. A challenge and a promise. So here's the challenge. 
One reason I'm passionate about restoring friendship as a priority among those who consider themselves followers of Jesus is because I'm convinced the church of tomorrow will never be compelling. It will not attract those who find faith difficult, if not incredible, to accept. And it will continue to lose its stickiness because we've talked uh, many times about the 40 million people who've walked away from the church in the last 25 years. These trends will continue if we don't recover an ancient, biblical, more robust vision for friendship. Not just do our lives depend upon it individually, not just our spiritual health, but our physical health. But the vibrancy of tomorrow's church in the West requires people uh, to experience this kind of beautiful community among diverse friendships. Love has to be tasted to be believed. As Victor Hugo put it, to love another person is to see the face of God. And it's friends who make this audacious claim that we are loved by God. It's friends who make that claim credible. At Broomtree, one of the things we're most passionate about is casting a vision of a beautiful community. And that won't be credible without recovering this art of friendship. And it is an art. The health of our leaders depends upon it. The integrity of our mission relies upon it. The credibility of our witness rests upon it. None of the things that any church says is important, community, mission, discipleship, none of these are sustainable without deep friendship. Even worship, we've seen, needs to be reimagined as our being called into the community of friends, God in three persons, by the true worship leader, our King Jesus, who is our best and greatest friend. And that's the promise I want to leave with. Adam was lonely in paradise and we are east of Eden. But we do have something Adam never did. Not just God with us, wherever we go, but we have God within us, the Spirit of Christ. This does not obviate our need for friends. As we said, even our Lord had need of friends in His dark hour. But it does tell us that if you know Jesus as your King and Savior, then we have it on his authority, that He wants us to know Him as friend, the friend we've always wanted, the best friend who will never leave us, who will never let us down, who will never break a promise, who is always glad to see you, who will never turn away when He sees or we show a side of ourselves for which we might have some shame. The old hymn said it more deeply than perhaps we've ever thought about. What a friend that we have in Jesus. The same Lord who invites you to join Him at the table in the circle of love, the Lord Jesus can be as real to you, as real and present as the best human friend and even closer and wants to be. But that has to start with recovering the ancient necessity of the gold of friendship for us to have the life that we've always wanted. Lord, um, we want to have these friends, and maybe for some of us this evoked, uh, could such things be? Could I have a friend like this? Um, so Lord, help us uh, to realize that because of you, because we do have a friend like this, that we can become the type of friends we've always wanted. Uh, and that even in this community you've gathered, that more and more we can be those friends for one another. 
And so that others will, will want to join this circle and say, hey, I want what they have. I want that. Lord, make us those kind of friends to one another to begin to learn how to love as you have first loved us. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.